0: And it's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wenti Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery, and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And uh, I'm fond of Oregon wines. I've talked about Oregon wines on the show before. Um, I think when a lot of people think of Oregon, they think of one region, the Willamette Valley, and they think of one grape, Pinot Noir, and I can't blame people for feeling that way because that's uh, it's famous for a reason, and they're world-class Pinot Noirs, and the Willamette Valley is a, certainly a lovely uh, destination to visit. But uh, uh, the more I dive into Oregon, the more I get interested in uh, what's going on in Southern Oregon. Um, uh, I had, as a guest on my show, Clive Pursehouse of Northwest Wine Anthem, and we talked a little bit about uh, getting to know Southern Oregon. But I thought I wanted to... Uh, uh, really drill down and really get involved and uh, talk to you more about Southern Oregon. So uh, I'm happy to have as a guest today on the show Herb Quadi of Quaddy North. Um, they are a winery located in Southern Oregon. And um, Herb, my first question is, I was I was doing a little uh, perusing your website, and um, it says uh, Quadi North wines from the state of Jefferson. Um, what What is the state of Jefferson?
1: Oh, well, the, the state of Jefferson – Um, That uh, that would have been, I think, the 49th state if it had happened uh, when the movement was really going in the 1940s or late 1930s. And basically you had a group of people from southern Oregon and northern California that sort of felt they had more in common with each other than their respective states. Um, And so since it's this mountainous area here where... You know, you have a lot of little river valleys and small communities, which are sort of very oh dependent on each other. Um, the people here had this sort of an idea of a semi-rebellious kind of a an attitude, where they would sort of value independence, but also a lot of tolerance, I think. Um, and so uh, they uh, they elected to uh, secede from their respective state governments, so and they got pretty far, actually. They um, had uh, a little constitution. It, it, it could have passed, but then World War II broke out and um, the effort was uh, forgotten and a lot of the grievances were addressed. And when I started um, in uh, 2006, I uh, sort of um, I hit on that because I had this sort of idea that I was specialize in these warm climate varieties. But as you mentioned, Oregon was so known for Pinot Noir, it seemed like uh, we wouldn't really identify necessarily as an Oregonian type winery. And yet we were Geographically, not in California, so I I hit on that uh, line of wine from the state of Jefferson, and it's used a lot actually in Southern Oregon. I think my septic provider
0: is State of Jefferson septic. For example. <laughs> two totally different things. we want to make that clear. Two,
1: two, two totally different things,
0: but I <laughs> I totally you know respect his
1: his uh, nod towards the uh, independence and the uh, the values of that movement back in the
0: yeah, and and that's the one thing about um talking about the state of Jefferson and um the uh you know the grape growing regions that you work with are the Applegate and Rogue Valley. Um where are those in, in relation to the state of Oregon? Like if I was uh in Portland, um like how far away am I or am I really close to California if I'm going to visit uh the Applegate and Rogue Valley?
1: The headwaters of the Applegate are really near the California border, and the Rogue Creek uh the Rogue Valley extends to the California border. So um these are the far southern parts of Oregon and they're about four and a half hours from Portland. And ironically they're only five and a half hours from the Bay Area. So I think we get you know roughly equal amount of, of tourists, let's say, from um, the Bay Area and from Portland. So we have you know some appreciation from, from both parts of the uh West Coast.
0: Yeah, and that's um I think there was just something um about uh the Applegate Valley in southern Oregon in uh, the New York Times, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I just maybe thinking about that, it was sort of that, okay, by the time you get out of the Bay Area and then you break through traffic and then you get up all the way up to Calistoga Highway Twenty Nine, I mean, it could take you two and a half hours, you know, two hours at the least. And so the um I think the idea with um that New York Times article was just, you know, what are you really looking for in a wine country experience? And the wines down here are very good, and but the quality of the wine experience is sort of refreshing because it's not intimidating, it's open, open to families, um, very, very pretty scenery, um, very affordable in terms of, you know, tasting fees and the wines themselves. So the, the travel writer, she, I think, sort of came up moderately skeptical and left really
0: impressed. So are you seeing more and more people coming up from from California and discovering southern Oregon? Is that a big uh chunk of people who who visit you and it maybe a non scientific thing that you're noticing
1: in my uh non completely and totally non scientific survey, I'd say yes i'd say and the, and the overriding thing we hear is that wow, this is really refreshing like and in other words, I mean she made a not of mention that um most wineries had some sort of area where kids could feel welcome and i think well most wineries here are run by small families most small families have kids i mean it's part of us just kind of we all need a place for our own kids to feel welcome when we have them here and maybe we're working in the winery um so it's not really much an extension for us to think about making those areas whereas i think and i mean keep in mind i have i'm from california my friends and family are from california But once you get to a certain size, um, you know, you're delegating, you're maybe listening a lot to um, maybe some, um, oh, a little bit of the the culture of your valley and the people you think you want to attract. And families are probably not on your radar. So um, unless you're, uh, you know, a particularly family-minded winery, you're probably looking more for people who you think are serious Focused buyer, Um, and so you tend to create your 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 tasting room and your environment towards that. So, I mean, this is just for instance. So, yeah, absolutely, we're seeing uh, more and more people from California
0: up here and then what's the what's the scenery like uh you know i when I think of um the Willamette valley I think of uh you know it's 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 lush and verdant and there's uh it's it can be very cool it's like sometimes Pinot Noir can't ripen but um what's the what's the climate and scenery like uh where you're at in southern oregon
1: it rugged i think is the is the adjective bucolic pastoral each little area is a river valley, and you have a year round river typically that flows um, to the area, and everybody's getting their water from there. People are living alongside it. Um, and then uh, it's a, a combination of small vineyards, towns, obviously, but then also hay farms, horse farms, small organic gardens, um, organic truck farms. So it's I, I like it a lot because it's broken up, and I, I don't think it's really going to change, but I hope it never loses that diversity, that sort of sense that, this is a real place that supports a lot of different interests, uh, not just um, dominated by uh, wineries and vineyards.
0: Right. And one of the other things I, I read about, let's if we don't if we can turn to it, let's talk about some grapes and some wines. Um, when I was looking at your website at quadinorth.com, I, I read that you're involved in a love triangle involving Viognier, Syrah, and Cabernet Franc. Um, let's just start with Viognier first. Um, You know, it's a grape that uh, I think about when I think about Condru in France, but people are are doing it in Washington, here uh, in Oregon, and, um, you know, I see it in California or or even, um, geez, even uh, on the other side of the uh, country in Virginia. But um, why Viognier in southern Oregon, and and why is it particularly suited for uh, where you are and what you're doing?
1: Right. So, you know, for the love triangle, you have Viognier and Syrah. Those are, those are a match. And it's Cabernet Franc, that's the uh, the interloper there. So that's the third piece of the, of the love triangle. But um, Viognier, interestingly, it's done, I think when it was introduced to the States, it was introduced as a white wine that, that could do well in warm climates. But I think if you look, if we're looking back to the old world as a model and as an example, I think it's telling that the place where they specialize in Viognier exclusively is part of possibly the coolest part or one of the coolest parts of the Rhone Valley. So for me, I think that Viognier is successful here because it starts cooling off in September and the Viognier starts ripening in September. It respires acid very readily and when you have warmer evenings and warmer days in general, you end up spiking the sugar very quickly, losing the acid, and you end up sort of flabby, high-alcohol wines. And here's sort of the opposite. The cool nighttime temps help guard the acid. They slow down the ripening. And we're able to pick Viognier at lower sugars and higher acids. We end up with fresh, um, you know, food-friendly wines that sit around anywhere between 12.5% to 13% alcohol and have naturally high acidity. So that's why Viognier is really successful and exciting down here. And it's probably the most common um, white wine you'll find in a Southern Oregon room, uh, tasting room is Viognier.
0: So it's kind of like uh, the signature white wine grape of the area. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: I would say it's fair to say. Coming on with that is Albarino. There's some very nice Albarinos. And then the white Rhone blend is very, very lovely. So we add Roussan and Marsan, in our case, we also add Grenache Blanc. And that's a very, very nice white as well.
0: Yeah, I just wrote about um, the Albarino from uh, Abacella on my site JamesonThink.com. I thought it was—I've uh, had that. I, first of all, I was surprised they'd been making it for like 12 years, um, and um, it was—it was really good. It's probably the best vintage of 2013 that I've had of it. So yeah, I'm I, I really uh, a fan of that uh, Southern Oregon Albarino as well. Yeah, one of one of my favorite whites every summer is the is Albarino, and
1: and down here Schmidt Valley Vineyards also does a nice Albarino. I'm probably forgetting something else, but. Um, there are a few, uh, good examples of that variety.
0: And uh, switching to the reds, uh, Cabernet Franc is something that you've mentioned is, you know, quite possibly your, your favorite variety. Um, when did you kind of fall in love with Cabernet Franc and, um, how is it, what, how is it, uh, I would say distinct for you and what you're doing in, um, in Southern Oregon?
1: Well, I, you know, I sort of always got this, oh, you know, I used to be, um, uh, I used to work in a cellar at Bonnie June Vineyard, and so I always have this sort of, you know, soft spot for the ugly duckling of the wine world. I, I feel part of a small group of special force winemakers out there to save the unwanted and uh, uh, unappreciated varieties of the world. And uh, one of my least favorite things to hear is like Cabernet Franc, but that's just a blending grape. Well, mm. it, it, it's a that's just a complete misconception popularized by ourselves with no basis in history at all, Um, because actually Cabernet Franc either takes the lead in blends or in the Loire Valley, it's uh, an outstanding standout. So what I realized when I got here, and of course I had instructions to make a Bordeaux blend, and we had Cabernet Franc, was that of all the red grapes we had made, addition to Syrah, Cabernet Franc was a wine that I thought stood from among the other great examples of Cabernet Franc I had ever tried. And so it was an exciting revelation, not because I had some incredible connection to Cabernet Franc and that was all I ever ma- wanted to make, but more that it was a little discovery. Like, oh, look at this. You know, In this trial, year after year after year, the Cabernet Franc keeps rising to the top. Um, and if I compare this Cabernet Franc from versions that I really enjoy elsewhere and are you know, well-acclaimed, then um, I find it's comparable. It's different, but it still has quality. So that was a very exciting revelation, which really got me on the kind of the Franc bandwagon. Um, so we consider ourselves strong Francophiles down here.
0: And, and as a Francophile for someone who, you know, has only experienced Cabernet Franc as, as part of a blend and maybe even a minor part of a blend, um, like, like aroma and flavor wise, what makes it distinct as a grape?
1: Well, aromatically, I mean, it can run, it can run a big range. But for us, we get as sort of a signature red pepper, um, addition to loam and even mint. And when I think of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon can either be oh, a little weedier, or depending upon you know the, where it's grown and the amount of uh, oak being used, it tends to run more to a current Cassis called Cabernet Frog. I think a defining feature of it is uh, maybe a, a red pepper, capsicum, loam, and mint, um, and you could add a little cocoa to that or leather, uh, we tend to get those for sure from ours. And I've seen that in France and like the Bourgogne region, for example. Um, in warmer years, they tend to have those qualities as well. And so in a blend, it's often blended with Cabernet Franc and Merlot, Cabernet Franc and Capsaub, you know. But if it's the leader in a blend, then those, then mostly we get sort of a you know, a, a loamy quality out of it, and then the Merlot fills in with texture. But if you have a good site where it can stand alone, then the texture is ample. And it's it can be, if not delicate, not necessarily as concentrated as Cabernet so especially when it's done here in this sort of mildly cool climate. So um, that's, those are sort of the defining features of Camp Franc, at least for me here in Southern Oregon.
0: Yeah, what I like about Cabernet Franc, and this is where I break out the technical term, is um, it has a lot of non-fruity flavors that I like. Absolutely. That I, I like those. Yeah. Uh, some people, like they say it in a pejorative manner, like, oh, this is green or herbaceous or things like that. But for me, when I read that in the review, like, like I like that. I like that flavor. I like that distinctness. I like the, the mint, the eucalyptus, the pepper, the herb, things like that. I think it really right. makes it makes it distinct. And obviously, you know, I mean, I don't want it underripe, giving me those flavors. But um, I I find that's why I really like uh, Cabernet Franc for those reasons. To me, it's just the most sort of like, you know, beguiling grape with its, um, you know, all its uh, stuff that there is besides, you know, it's kind of weird to think about a a fruit giving you, um, you know, a grape giving you flavors of like, you know, herbs and spices and peppers and stuff like that. But I guess that's what makes, um, you know, Making and drinking wine so interesting is uh you know the chameleon like aspect of uh every glass you can have
1: right and and each variety has like two sets of ripening factors there's an internal clock which is really has more to do with days to harvest and this tends to be come from um, you know triggered almost by bug break, and then so many days are then needed before to get through all the different physiological um, phases. And then the other factor is heat. And so the trick to to matching a variety to the climate where it's grown is to get those things sort of um, as aligned, as closely aligned as possible so that when you're, in, especially in the critical last four to six weeks before harvest, the post-variation period, you want that period to sort of progress regularly but not too fast so that, you know, you're not... Um, you don't have sort of the more sensitive um, aroma precursors um, exposed to high degrees of heat and metabolizing very quickly faster than the grape can kind of develop. Um, When you think about those underripe or green characters, that's exactly the thing is that if you, I think the, the worst elements of that are ones that you would taste in a dry, unripe, green tannin versus ones that you could smell, which can be very interesting you know, like mint and eucalyptus, which are maybe slightly, you know, underwrite qualities, but if the texture is there and it's subtle, then it just becomes really interesting, interesting note.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, When we've talked about some, uh, a little bit about white wine, a little about red wine, but let's, uh, let's talk about something that I know we're both really passionate about, and that's rosé. Can you talk about the rosé you make at Quadi North? And, And maybe also, I know it's sort of changed over the last few years, like you've uh, added, uh, it used to be Syrah, now it's Syrah Grenache, and you've kind of changed the program a little bit. Can you talk about why you love rosé and then the evolution of, of your rosé that you've been making over the last few vintages?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, like I think kind our back label, it says that we are vociferously pro-rosé because in in my mind, especially when we first started making this wine, I, had, I always had this feeling like there was this sort of like us versus them kind of a thing, like you've got the forces, the pro rosé forces, you know, the the unapologetic pinkos against uh, those that are out there who might seek to uh, undermine your efforts by dismissing you as yet another white zen and unserious wine. And yet, while I don't want anybody to take it particularly seriously, we take we make every serious effort in making the wine. And it all goes back to me with just um, some of the happiest days of our, you know, of my life spent uh, sitting on. Underneath poplar trees and throwing uh, boules and playing petanque with huge glasses of rosé from sort of, you know,
0: three euro
1: uh, bottles uh, in the south of France, and and that experience is always going to color what I feel about rosé. And and if you, you know, in the West Coast especially and in the Northwest where you have these long days, but well, we need to start drinking early in order to have you know like we we've got a lot yeah. of daylight and yeah. so. We have a we have a we need to have like a good afternoon wine, and so we need to start with rosé. We started with cabernet francs, and the day's all blown, right? Then you just and by that time you're you're ending with absinthe, and it's just going downhill. We oh, need yeah. to start with something sort of bright and fruity, and just have it build from there. So rosé fills that void, that that post-luncheon or the luncheon kind of void where it's okay to, you know, have it with a grilled sandwich. We don't need to be particularly serious about this thing. But in order to get maximum enjoyment, we have to be serious about making it. And I always wanted to have more Grenache in my rosé, but it was a matter of getting the vineyards um, to do it because even now, I don't think there's more than about 15, 20 acres of Grenache in Southern Oregon. And so we had to basically graft, plant, develop our Grenache sources so that way we would have enough Grenache to make a Grenache-driven rosé. So now I'm really sort of getting it to right about, the, I think, the level we like, which is about 50% Grenache and 40% Syrah and 10% more Morfette is also a really nice element in the rosé. And I think this year we may add a little bit of quinoise, um, possibly keep upping the amount of Grenache. But, but that's really, I mean, that's making for nice dry rosé with a lot of fruit. It's actually a relatively decent body in it, especially for a Northwest rosé.
0: And, um, you know, I know you've, like you said, you've increased the amount of Grenache in your uh, rosé, but um, is Grenache something that you have played around with as as making a, a red wine from, and do you think that could be something really interesting coming from southern Oregon?
1: Yeah, the telling vintage for me was that I was always just, you know, I was afraid. I was just flat out afraid to make Grenache as a red. Everybody said it was too late. I mean, we had some pretty interesting vintages in 2005 for example and it just seemed like oh my gosh you know we're I'm having a hard time getting this cab ripe right. how am I ever going to make grenache but uh, I started experimenting with it more in 2011 and 2011 was a you know that was a classic Oregon harvest not it was very late it was rainy and we made um, excellent grenache in that year and that really to me was the the telling point that said, well, look, if we farm it right, if you have got the right sites, if we've got the right clone, we can make really nice Bernofsky here in a Northwest style, a lower alcohol style. And the 2011 is like that. I mean, it's 13.5% alcohol. That yeah, is 13 maybe. And it's uh, really a pretty, pretty wine that's developed nicely. I think one of the secrets is not to extract too much. Let it sort of you know, be a more delicate, lighter red, don't give a lot of oak. Bottle it early and just sort of go with it, you know. Don't fight it. Don't try to make some big concentrated red wine. Just make a lovely, everyday, enjoyable Grenache like they have in, in Spain and southern France. Um, and that's sort of where the style that we've ended up with. I'm also using it in GSN. So we have a Grenache Syrah Morved, which is, you know, lovely too. Almost the same percentages as the um, the uh, the Rosé, just a little bit more Morved, um and less Grenache in that one.
0: And uh, one of the things that you've talked about, I mean, just talking about rosé is uh, what a great food wine it is. And one of the things I think that you do at the tasting room that's interesting is a lot of times you do like a a Friday food pairing or have some food available when people come and visit the tasting room. Um, What kind of food do you like to show off when you do that? Uh, Like is it local products or what do you have on the plate?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea with the Friday food pairing is just to make a fun social event but also to highlight local uh, food um providers, so we like to to cycle between restaurants um specialty you know producers like creameries or um bakeries, and then um growers like small organic um growers for example, and we try to you know get something that's going to pair with the featured wine which coincides with the wine called shipment, um and it ends up being a nice drop-in event for people who are going to maybe go out to dinner in Jacksonville. Um, so people come in, cycle through, taste, socialize, and then go and have dinner. So, But, yeah, it's, it was sort of nice. And, you know, interesting thing with that and also the wine dinners, it also makes bridges with your clients. So if we're going to do a, a restaurant, a restaurant might have our wine by the glass, and then we work with them on a Friday food pairing, and it just sort of strengthens that relationship a little bit. So that's always a good, a good, uh, side effect of the Friday food pairing.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, finally, one of the things I was looking at that I thought that was really interesting when, um, you're t- talking about developing, uh, your, your vineyard your for, uh, Quaddy North is that, uh, like the, before it was a vineyard, it was, uh, a motor, motocross track and full of uh, rusting vehicles. I mean, what was it like yeah. uh, when you see this site that's a, a, a motocross track and there are all these rusting vehicles on it? How do you envision turning that into a vineyard? I mean, how much of a, a, a labor was that?
1: Yeah, that was a labor. It was an unsanctioned motocross track. Uh, it ended up uh, drawing the ire of the neighbors and uh, a subsequent injunction by the county. So the, the owner, whose beautiful vision was this motocross track, I uh, decided to put it up for sale, and when we inherited it. Uh, so, I mean, I would drive by it every day between where I was living and, and uh, where I was working, and it was about 20 feet off of the road, so I would see this cutout, and the cutout would be embedded rock and, you know, red soil, and I could also look at the vegetation and just see, you know, how it would dry out, and and it was, you know, it's full of south-facing, sloping hills, sort of south, and so- southeast and southwest, and that was a very natural for the Applegate Valley, so um, I kind of you know had to look past the, uh, the the motocross and the dilapidated home to say, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure, that's, that's a vineyard site." And I don't know. we might have pulled off 20 vehicles, um, something about forty dumpsters. Wow it was, a, it was a good half year of cleanup before we actually. We also hired the guys who built the motocross track. And then um, we paid them to put the dirt back, oh, which yeah. uh, worked out really well for them because uh, effectively they knew where the dirt came from and they got paid twice. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. I, I guess the uh, the unsanctioned motocross uh, track community's loss is the, is the wine community's gain, right? Yeah,
1: that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we get people, some people, you know, most people are sort of like, yeah, we could hear the motocross from across the valley. It's so nice that you're here. Other people are like, man, they had a really good job. Uh, It's too bad that they're (laughs) gone.
0: Well, Herb, thanks for uh, being on the show and talking with me today. Uh, I think, you know, like I said out in the beginning, you know, Oregon's been put on the map for the Willamette Valley and Pinot Noir, and I think that's opened the doors for uh, people like me to get to know, uh, go go beyond the Willamette Valley and explore the Applegate and Rogue Valley and look at some of these wines like Viognier. Syrah and Cabernet Franc and more. So I encourage everyone to go to QuadiNorth.com, learn more about what Herb's doing, uh, and uh, look for some wines that say uh, Applegator Rogue Valley on them. And, uh, you know, uh, just uh, if you're in the Bay Area, drive up and and visit. And it uh, sounds like a really charming spot. And go on a Friday and eat some cheese. So, uh, Herb, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jameson. Thanks for having me.